Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we are gathered together this morning because you are a great God. As we've already sung uh, in many different ways, we recognize your great glory, your power, your righteousness, your sovereignty, your goodness, your kindness. Uh, Father, you know each one in this room intimately. You have counted the hairs on our head. You are an amazing God. And we come now thanking you for this series on the glory of God, praying that it would give this church a big view of you and build us up to be courageous and compassionate in light of your amazing character. And Father, as a a guest of this church this morning, as a visitor to this particular local congregation today, I gladly pray for the members of Crabapple Baptist Church that they might be filled with all the pieces of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that they might be together a profound testimony of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as has already been prayed this morning, that they as one body might be filled with joy in you, because of you, for you, and that even today as your word is unpacked, that this congregation might grow to love you and love one another more and more. And Father, even as we gather together, recognizing our own need of you, We are quite aware of our neighbors in the community of Milton who are in desperate need of a clear understanding of the gospel. And even though an understanding of the gospel is not the same thing as conversion, we know that you desire your gospel to be heard, to be proclaimed, to be understood. And we pray that it would be clearly proclaimed and understood day to day in the community around us. We pray that schools would care well for students. We pray that civil servants would be treated with kindness and well provided for, that justice would be enforced and embraced, but that in the midst of all of that, the Christians who are part of this local church would happily and heartily make you known that your gospel might be understood and ultimately that many would come to saving faith in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. And as we humble ourselves before your word in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we pray even now that the Lord's Supper about to be shared by us today might be a genuine reflection of the union that we have with Christ and with one another as fellow believers. So we love you. We pray that you would help us attend to your word, to enjoy your word, And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you uh, in these uh, dog days of summer. Uh, I have been in this building before, but never on a Sunday morning. So I am happy uh, to be here. I have grown to love uh, Jerry uh, over these past uh, many years as we've gotten to know one another. And and, uh, you as a church have become part of the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network Atlanta just never seems to start spreading. We'll try to keep our traffic away. Um, But it's been a sweet thing to be uh, in relationship with other churches in our area uh, with a a heart for the gospel. Every true church, of course, has a heart for the gospel. Uh, But finding churches that are proclaiming that gospel week in and week out and uh, seeking to lead others into fellowship with Christ and who don't want to go at it alone but want to link up uh, voluntarily with other believers, well, uh, we need more churches like that. So on behalf of Mount Vernon Baptist Church, I just want to thank you for being a part of the the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network with us. Uh, Today, I want to do something, uh, well, if I were preaching my own church, I would say a little bit unusual, and that is to give you uh, a bit of an overview of a couple chapters of the Bible. And since I'm a guest preacher, uh, you're not going to complain to me about how long I go. You'll just never invite me back again. And, uh, you know, no skin off my nose. So, you know, sorry, Jerry, it's all on you, you know. But that's pastoral ministry, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, let's get at it. What does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? Well, much of what it says about those gifts is found in our chapters, chapters 12 and 13. Again, my message is an overview of these chapters. I cannot cover every verse, but I'm hopeful that you will be thankful by the end of the sermon for the Spirit's work in your life and in the life of your church. Chapter 12 really talks about spiritual gifts. And chapter 13 talks really about the greatest spiritual gift, love. And love is on display. Love is on display when we exercise and enjoy the gifts that God has given us. So here's the main idea. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ empowers every believer to serve the body of Christ in the love of Christ. The Spirit of Christ empowers every believer to serve the body of Christ in the love of Christ. And in all of that, we see God's glory, which is what I understand you've been thinking about now for weeks and weeks. In that, we get to see to the extent that we hug and we encourage we get, to, we get to feel the glory of God as he's at work in the life of a local church because a local church is not a social club. A local church is not a nonprofit. A local church is not a business. A local church is not a group of people with nothing to do on Sunday and so they decide to get together to sing. A local church is a communion of saints filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a powerful thing. And Alt makes it so plain that you barely need me to preach. The word itself here is so obvious. Anyone can understand Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, which makes my job very, very easy. Let's take the sentence I gave you a few moments ago, piece by piece, and that'll be the outline of the message this morning. So point number one, the Spirit of Christ empowers every believer. Look at verse one again. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now Paul points out, reminds them of their pagan days when they literally bowed down to idols made out of wood and stone. And this was a common practice for first century Corinthians. Uh, without the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds them, without the Holy Spirit, absent the Holy Spirit, they worshipped the wrong thing. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of God. The natural person, the person without the Spirit, does not accept the things of God. But it's not just that. As Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, we discover it's not just that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things of God. No, the person without the Spirit worships false gods. To put it bluntly, maybe a little crassly, right? dogs bark, ducks quack. It's their nature, and it is the nature of the non-Christian, the natural person, someone without the Spirit of God to worship that which is not God. It is his nature. It is her nature to be an idolater. Saying that to our non-Christian neighbors will not make us many friends. But it is true. Worship is nothing more nor nothing less than giving your heart to your greatest love. Look at the way shoppers head to the mall on Black Friday. They are filled with zeal for the next great thing. 
Right? Look at the way citizens engage in political discussion, not just in our era, but in every era, at least of American life. They are filled with anger toward those with different political opinions. Look at the way men and women service the multi-billion dollar pornography industry. They are consumed with the lust of their eyes. Look at the way so many are, are glued to Netflix and Amazon Prime, falling asleep to the warm glow of their screens. It's all worship, just like the paganism of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. You don't need the Spirit to worship. That's how Paul begins these two chapters. You don't need the Spirit to worship. We all worship. You do need the Spirit of Christ to worship rightly, to worship as God intended you to worship. And when we have Him, when we have Christ, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we worship Christ, as Paul says in verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And if you're being skeptical, well, of course, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. You know Paul's talking about more than just uttering the words. Right? No one can, can truly say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, except having been filled by the Holy Spirit. This is a God work. He says, not a man work. In Romans 8, chapter 9, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. I think because when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are inevitably led to worship Christ. We're filled with the Spirit of Christ in that sense. We declare Christ is Lord. And when the Spirit of Christ fills you, you are empowered. Right? Every true believer has the Spirit of Christ, and that means every true believer is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is, it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So Paul's focus here is on God's grace to every believer. Gifts, in verse 4, is from the Greek word charismata. Charis means grace. Charismata is a grace gift. Paul says in verse 4 that the Spirit lavishes all sorts, varieties of grace gifts on His people. And notice whom is empowered. Look at the end of verse 6. It is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So nobody, no Christian, walks up to the counter of God's grace only to hear, no grace gift for you. No, every Christian, every Christian receives grace gifts from God. Now, this is not just an interesting observation. It is, in fact, the very point of the passage that God leaves none out. Look at verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So Paul focuses on God's grace to every believer. Nine grace gifts are listed in these verses. There are other similar lists in the New Testament. Romans 12, 6 through 8, for example. Ephesians 4, 11, for example. No list is exactly the same, which tells us that none of these lists are meant to be exhaustive. They are all partial. Paul isn't trying to tell us that these are the only 
you know, nine grace gifts that are available. No, he, he wants us to celebrate the Spirit of Christ lavishing all sorts of gifts, varieties of gifts on the people of Christ the way a parent lavishes gifts on a child on Christmas Day there are a variety of gifts. And the main idea here is not what these gifts are, but who has them. The Spirit empowers every believer. And therefore, I think we shouldn't assume a person has a single gift for a lifetime. Rather, the Spirit is at work for His own purposes, in His own people, for as long as he sees fit. You may, have a, you may have a particular gift for a lifetime. I don't know how long I'm going to be a pastor. I have no intention of ending anytime soon, but right, it's all Lord willing. As long as I am a pastor, I must have the grace gift of teaching or I am not qualified to be a pastor. Nonetheless, you may have a particular gift for a lifetime, but that does not preclude other gifts from being at work as the Spirit operates in your life. So let's just take for a moment the gifts we see in 1 Corinthians 12. So the Spirit may give you wisdom to know how to persevere in suffering. What a great gift that is. The Spirit may give you knowledge to help you understand and explain perhaps a troubling passage. The Spirit may give you faith to trust the Lord deeply when lots of others are doubting. The Spirit may give you healing to demonstrate His divine power and kindness. The Spirit may give you miracles to testify to the person and work of Christ. The Spirit may give you prophecy to help someone apply a biblical idea to our lives. The Spirit may give the ability to distinguish between spirits, that is to offer a well-spoken word that counters the wisdom of this age. Uh, the Spirit may give you tongues to demonstrate His presence. The Spirit may give you the interpretation of tongues to share the Spirit's meaning. Now, I personally believe that some of these gifts, the more we might call the more miraculous ones like healing, miracles and tongues and interpretation, I personally believe that those gifts were unique to the first century, an age when God was in the process of establishing His church. And He used these unusual or more extraordinary gifts as a testimony, as, as a witness to the, the truthfulness of the gospel. I get that from passages like Ephesians 2.20 or Hebrews 2, 1-4. That's not my point here. It's really not Paul's main point to keep your eye on the big picture. The, the Spirit is not limited to this list of grace gifts. No, encouragement is a grace gift. Mercy is a grace gift. Teaching is a grace gift. Love is a grace gift. The Spirit of Christ is at work in a variety of ways empowering the people of Christ. We tend to get caught up in the gifts and lose sight of the giver, the Spirit, who gives these gifts. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Now why do we hate Cinderella's stepmother? because she plays favorites. She lavishes gifts on her daughters but gives nothing to her stepdaughter. She leaves Cinderella out in the cold. God is not like that. He apportions to each one individually as he wills, as he sees fit. No one is left out. Every Christian is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. So what? What should we do in light of this? Brothers and sisters, praise. Praise the Spirit of Christ. He does not draw attention to Himself. The Spirit is like a spotlight shining on the Father and on the Son. When you are walking in holiness, when you are teaching God's Word, when you are persevering through trials, when you are sharing the Gospel, it is the Spirit of God 
who deserves the credit. Right? You're not a- an employee in a business who has been sufficiently trained to build a widget. And if you're a Christian, you're a child of God filled by the Spirit of God to do the work of God in whatever field that God has planted you. God's Spirit gets the credit for the work that you do by His power, and the Spirit of Christ is at work in the heart of every believer. What a great God that we have that such a thing can be said about people like us. God loves the church and gives a variety of gifts to the members of His church. His Spirit is at work encouraging the saints, shepherding the flock, uh, convicting of sin, comforting the brokenhearted, Again, not a business, not a nonprofit, a gathering of believers filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to do the work God has called us to do. We don't always know what gifts we have, but we know what the church needs, and we put our hand to the plow and trust the Spirit to empower us to serve the church. I know that you are eager to know how God has gifted you, but I think the best place to start is simply by believing theologically, biblically, that if you are a Christian, God has gifted you in the moment to serve his people. This takes us to point number two. The Spirit empowers every believer, second, to serve the body of Christ. I've already touched on that. Now I want to expand on it. All right? The Spirit empowers every believer. Why? To serve the body of Christ. Consider the purpose then of spiritual or grace gifts. They are for service. Look again at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Right, A grace gift you receive from the Spirit is to be used in service, in activity. For what? End to what end? For the common good, right? For the good of the church. Your gift is not like a piece of art hanging in the High Museum in downtown Atlanta to be admired once every 10 years when someone visits. Your gift is like a hammer or a shovel to be used in the service of the body of Christ. Again, for the common good. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. When Paul says, so it is with Christ, he's referring to the body of Christ. He leaves out the words, the body of Christ, knowing his readers will understand what he means. So it is with the body of Christ. The church, just as a human body has several members, all attached, all forming one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with the body of Christ. The church, we're to serve together for the common good of Christ, of the body of Christ, of the local church. It's such a simple obvious point, but Paul doesn't want any of us to miss it. Every part of the body matters. Paul is very simple in his illustrations. I will be very simple in my illustrations. If I get a splinter in my toe, my whole body is called into action. I try to find it with my eyes, which are getting older and have a very difficult time finding something so far away from them. I try to pull it out with my fingers. And if it hurts really badly, I have to walk on my heel. You see what's happening? One little toe afflicted by a splinter. 
And the whole body is called into action. That's Paul's point in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is not difficult theology. But for some reason, churches can forget or ignore, diminish or downplay this precious truth. Even in churches, we can act as if some parts are better than others, and it's just not true. The Spirit of Christ empowers every Christian to serve the body of Christ. Every member of the church has a unique role to play, a special contribution to make. In one sense, when it comes to a local church, no one is necessary. Right? In one sense, no one is necessary. No one is indispensable. We are not like a professional sports franchise that absolutely depends upon one or two key players to be competitive. Really, the truth of the matter is only Christ is our head. He is our captain. Christ alone is necessary. But that's not Paul's point here. There is another sense in which we are all necessary. We are all needed. We are all valuable. There is a sense in which none of us is optional. None of us is dispensable. I know those may seem like two contradictory points. None of us is indispensable, right? None of us is dispensable. Um, you can go work that, work that out on your own. But isn't this why seeing someone you love leave the church is so hard? Like, why is it so hard when someone leaves the church? It's like having a hand cut off. At least that's what it should feel like. And one of the saddest experiences that I have as a pastor is not when someone leaves the church and it's painful, although I don't like that, but it's when someone leaves the church and it's not painful. And I think, what in the world happened that that person can walk out and know where the doors are? That person can walk out the doors and not be known. That is even sadder to me than when someone leaves and it's painful. In a fallen world, some believers are more attached than others to the body of Christ. Now that's another sermon, but here's the key. Every church member has an individual contribution to make. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, there are no more Old Testament prophets or New Testament apostles. As I said before, I'm not convinced God still gifts uh, us with tongues or, or even healing. I think healing still happens, but as far as a unique gift. But there is an awful lot of teaching and an awful lot of helping and an awful lot of administrating going on in my church and I trust in your church. We all have different gifts. And instead of envying one another, this should lead us to worship the Holy Spirit who has distributed these gifts as he wills. He has given you what you need, what the church needs for the church's common good. Now, how should we apply this to our lives? Paul gives us two clear words of application. First, fight the temptation to think you are not important. Fight the temptation to think you are not important. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I love this paragraph. I just love this paragraph. Sometimes Mr. Foot looks at Mr. Hand and says, why do you have all the fun? You never have to wear a stinky sock. You are always closer to the action. You get to touch other hands. I'm always stuck in this old shoe. I don't really belong. I don't matter. And Ms. Ear looks at Ms. Eye and says, I wish I was an eye. The things I could see. The body would be better off with more eyes. We don't need ears. Both Mr. Foot and Ms. Ear are tempted to think they aren't important. They're tempted to think they aren't really part of the body. They don't understand how crucial they are. They don't understand they make the body the body. The body would not be the body without them. And Paul understands the human heart. And he writes here in ways that any child can understand. He knows the temptation so many of us feel that we don't belong. We can feel like we are on the outside looking in. We can feel like everybody has a place but us. It's a temptation most all of us face at some time in our spiritual lives. And what should you do if this is you? You should fold into the body, be active, not just formally by coming to services, but informally by inviting people into your home, by inviting someone out for coffee. Do the hard work of trying to welcome people into your life. If you know someone who seems content, if you know someone at Crab Apple Baptist who seems unusually content and happy in the Lord in the service that he or she is undertaking, you might ask them, how do you do that? Why do you seem so content and happy in what you're doing? Learn from them. Lean into the body and be patient. This is so important. We want an immediate fix, but that sense of belonging that sense of being a part of the body takes time, especially if you're new to the church. Right? It can take time to figure out which part of the body you are. Are you Mr. Hand or are you Ms. I? Be patient and pray for God to show you how you fit into this church and don't worry about fitting. Devote yourself to patiently serving. And lastly, and most importantly, preach the gospel to yourself. If you are a Christian, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Your importance or sense of belonging does not ultimately come from how others perceive you or even from how you perceive yourself. It comes from the Lord who loved you enough to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die for sinners like you. Your sense of belonging comes from Christ who bore the wrath of God in the place of his beloved bride, the church. And if you're a Christian for you, your importance to, your attachment to, Speaking to members of Crabapple, this local church is not wishful thinking. Right? Oh, I wish I were attached. No. If you're a Christian, it is the rock-solid truth of the gospel. So use the gospel to fight the temptation to think you aren't important. Now here's the second application, right from Paul. Fight the temptation to think you are all important. Fight the temptation to think you are all important. Look at verse 21. Paul continues his application. He knows the danger of spiritual pride. And so he writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So what if Ms. I doesn't think much of Mr. Foot? Now you can, in your imaginations, maybe attach names to that, but if that's not edifying, please don't do that. What if Ms. I doesn't think much of Mr. Foot? He's blind after all. Ms. I doesn't have patience for someone who can't at least see the road. Ms. I is a snob. And what about Mr. Head? He's all head and no heart. He might make fun of Mr. Foot for not knowing where to go. And what about us? Whom do we judge as unworthy of our time and our attention? Whom do you pass by without greeting? Whom do you assume is being cared for by somebody else? Brothers and sisters, this is where the church is supposed to be different than the world. The world rolls out the red carpet for pop stars and athletes, Nobel Prize winners and models. The world honors the world honors billionaires and ignores busboys. The world showers politicians with praise and ignores plumbers. God's economy is different. We roll out the red carpet. We, we roll out the red carpet for those despised by this world. We give greater honor to the parts of the body the world considers lowly, parts of the body that never see the light of day. The church is no place for those who think they are all important. We need elders, right, those who teach publicly and stand up in front of you. But we also need VBS teachers. We need deacons who serve in public ways often. But we need prayer warriors that we hardly see at all. How can we fight this temptation to think we are all important? Care for the body. Look again at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When you are convinced others are as important or more important than you, you'll suffer when they suffer. You'll rejoice when they're honored. You'll care about them. But to care about them, you need to know them. And to know them, you need to talk to them. I love saying obvious things. To care about them, you need to know them. To know them, you need to talk to them. To talk to them, you need to walk up to them. You need to be around them. We, the Church of the Living God, are less like a social club and more like a hospital. We come to bandage one another's wounds, applying the gospel the way a doctor applies a Band-Aid and helping each other to live in a fallen world. The hospital isn't the only you know, metaphor that can be used to describe the church, but it is one. Care for the body. Very practically, ask people to pray for you. This is a simple way to prove that you need others. You need their prayers. I'm horrible at this, uh, asking people to pray for me. I don't want to bother people. I don't want to inconvenience them. I don't want to make it about me. But that's just pride. I think I'm being humble, but I'm acting like I don't need other people. Like they have nothing to offer me. Like their prayers for me, their care for me doesn't matter. But I do need brothers and sisters. Pastors need brothers and sisters. I need to grow in this because I need prayers and encouragement because I'm not all important. I'm not unimportant. But I'm not all important or all sufficient. Finally, and most importantly, preach the gospel to yourself. Recall what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? There is no reason to think you are all important. Everything you have and everything you are comes from God. He didn't just make you. If you're a Christian, he remade you. He, re like he went to work again on you. How amazing is that? You horrible, rebellious sinner. God didn't just make you. He remade you, Christian. That you might grow more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth that is. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. So, you know, on one hand, you're just not as important as you think. 
And on the other hand, you're more important than you could ever possibly imagine. That's because you know you are a lowly sinner saved by grace. So, Paul has shown us the Spirit of Christ empowers every believer. That was point number one. Second, he empowers every believer to serve the body of Christ. That was point number two. Now, third, we serve the body of Christ in the love of Christ. Look at verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, it's hard to know exactly what these higher or greater gifts are, but after everything that we've just considered, it's safe to argue that they are those gifts which best build up the the body of Christ, which best serve the common good. The gift of tongues, we know from other parts of Paul's writings, is less edifying than the gift of prophecy. In that sense, it's a lower gift. What's strange about this verse is the way Paul commands us to desire the higher gifts. It's strange because he made it clear in verse 11 that the Spirit gives out the gifts as he sees fit. So why bother desiring one gift above another? Well, I wonder if Paul is simply encouraging us to be the kind of people who care less about the gift we have and more about the church we're part of. Like he's, it's as if he's saying, look, as you are living your Christian life, as you're wanting to be faithful to exercise the gifts I've given you, what I want you to keep your mind on is not like, oh, Lord, I pray that you'd make me a pastor so I can speak in front of other people, but I want you to be thinking about and praying about what the church needs. I want you to desire any gift that is going to serve the common good, right? Desire the, the, the greater gifts in that sense. When people join Mount Vernon, where I pastor, I always ask them, how would you like to serve? It's not a trick question. I generally want to know how they'd like to serve. But it is sweet to hear wherever there's a need. This is a sweet thing to hear. You know, that just, I mean, unless they're like trying to impress me, but I try not to question their motives. You know, look, it doesn't mean they don't like to sing or play piano or teach but I think it's a very Christian response, isn't it? Again, I'm happy to know that they like to sing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no sin in that. Uh, I, in fact, I'd rather know than not know. But I love someone who says, I care more about what the church needs than about joining the church where I can showcase how I perceive God to have blessed me. This makes sense, I think, of the second half of that verse, and I will show you a more excellent way. Here's what's excellent having such a love for the people of God that you serve the body of Christ wherever you can and wherever there's a need. And this love is evidence you are here not to receive, but to give. You aren't here to be seen, to find self-fulfillment, or to show yourself superior to others, or to have an experience. No, you're here to serve others in the love of Christ. So here's the cold, hard truth I take from chapter 13 in particular, but I think it's throughout the Gospels and really throughout the Bible. It is possible to do all the right things, to teach Sunday school, to prepare sermons, to shepherd the flock, to organize greeters, to watch kids in the nursery, and still go to hell. It's possible. Because all these grace gifts... They can be faked. There's only one grace gift that cannot be faked. Love. Look at 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I assume your church is a lot like mine, and I can tell already being here, it's a, it's a well-ordered church. There was a clock that told me when the service w- was going to start. That was great. You know, I got to stop talking to you because that clock is about to wind down. All right, we start on time. Amen. Our classes run smoothly. Our services have a uniting theme. Did you catch that in the bulletin? I did. Uniting theme. We're the whole, from beginning to end, we're preparing for the Lord's Supper. Right? We look like a church. 
But the Titanic was well-ordered right before it hit the iceberg and sunk. Brothers and sisters, if we have not love, we are as good as sunk too. We just haven't hit the iceberg yet. And I don't want to be that well-ordered pastor who piloted the well-organized church into a well-dug grave. I don't want to preach sermons and have mission trips and schedule small groups and offer children's ministry only to discover we never traveled the still more excellent way. You don't want to go through the motions, exercising your spiritual gifts and serving the church only to discover on the last day that you neglected the one gift that mattered, love, which is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the verses I'm about to read really matter. And perhaps in 2021, in a season when so much of our public debate is nothing but contentious, and when arguments in the church can reflect the tone of the world, perhaps it's safe to say these words matter more than ever. Look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's nice to read these words at weddings, but they really are for the church. I love how one pastor put it. He wrote, an envious Christian, a malicious Christian, a cold and hard-hearted Christian is the greatest absurdity and contradiction. It is as if one should speak of dark brightness or false truth. So how are you doing? In light of all this, in light of this call to love, to serve the church patiently and kindly, not getting easily offended when things don't go the way you'd like them to go or when someone makes a decision you don't care for, serve the church without boasting, without envy, arrogance, or rudeness. In other words, we're to serve without our ego getting in the way. Whether we're asked to help or not asked to help is not what matters. What matters is our humble obedience to Christ and our love for Christ's body. You can't fake that. Don't insist on your own way. Don't be easily irritated. Don't hold a grudge. And this is what love looks like. And this, Paul says, is so much more important than whether you prophesy or speak in tongues or whether you teach or whether you heal when all the other spiritual gifts are gone, verse 13, because they are no longer necessary, love will be there. Now, if you're anything like me, you're thinking, well, how can I get better at that? How can I love better? I don't want to sink like the Titanic, Aaron, but I don't know how to make myself love. Well, here's the answer, and it's pretty simple. You don't just need to know what love is. You need to know who love is. Verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, they show us Jesus Christ. Study those verses and you will see the image of the Son of God. If you are a Christian, you'll see someone who has been so patient with you, he waited on you while you rejected him. You'll see someone so kind, he chose to give his very life for you, taking the wrath of God upon himself. You'll see someone who had no place to lay his head but never envied those who did. He never wished he lived in a bigger house. Someone who held the stars in his hands but he never boasted. Look at how many stars I can fit in the palm of my hand. That's just not our Savior. Always humble. Always gentle. You'll see someone who in one sense didn't want the crucifixion but he chose the still more excellent way of the cross. And he took it without getting huffy, without being angry at us, without resenting us. He took it joyfully out of love for his Father, love for us, and love for the joy set before him. You'll see someone who has so much joy in truth, he died for the sake of justice. And you'll see someone who bore the sins of all his people, believed all the words of his Father, and put his hope in the future resurrection you'll see someone who endured the painful cross for sinners like you and me. 
So it's easy to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and think it's all about spiritual gifts. It's easy to think of churches where everyone has a job and knows their gift and their place, but that's not it. At least it's not the most important bit. You can exercise gifts and still get sunk by the iceberg. The Spirit of Christ empowers every believer to serve the body of Christ in the love of Christ. If you're not serving in the love of Christ, you're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that I'm in the midst of a series on the glory of God, and I hope what you've seen today is how the glory of God is revealed, manifest, made visible, put on display in the church. God's grandeur, His power, His beauty, His majesty, His heft, His weightiness, His seriousness, His awesomeness, they are all on display, not in demonstrations of earthly power, right? Like a point guard who never passes the ball. No, God's glory is on display in a church of spirit-filled sinners eager to look like Christ as they lovingly serve one another. And this is what the Lord's Supper represents. It's a picture both of what, what Christ has done for us, right, loving us, giving himself up, exercising the grace gift of love in the most difficult way possible. This is a picture of that, what Christ has done for us, and it's a picture of how we are to live together as Christians in community, as a body of people, each with his own gift, united by what matters most, not the gifts that distinguish us, but the gospel that unites us. So this morning, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, let's remember the glory of God is revealed in the church Christ died to save. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a glorious God. We know that you don't need us. You are content in yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in your wisdom that is really beyond our comprehension, you chose to create us, save us when we rejected you, and bring us together into local churches that showcase your glory by exercising the gifts you lavish upon us for the common good. And so today, as Crabapple Baptist celebrates the Lord's Supper, we pray that we might be celebrating you and your love, your mercy, and your grace showered upon us undeservingly but wonderfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I invite you to stand and during this song to come forward and to take the Lord's Supper.